I'm here with uh, Sharon and Maisie, and uh, we're going to talk today uh, about some research that Sharon has taken uh, part in and uh, presented and uh, developed over a period of months. Uh, and this is concerned with Junius or Junia in Romans chapter 16, right? So at the end of Romans 16, Paul is listing various people. What, uh, uh, remind me, what, what is the verse exactly that is mentioning Junia? Romans 16, 7, and it reads, Greet Andronicus and Junius, or Junia, depending on the translation, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners who are outstanding among the apostles who are in, also in Christ before me. And so the picture is that, first of all, is Junia an apostle? The name, well, what, are the, what are the issues? So it seems that not only is he, uh, Paul saying that Junia, which is a woman's name, is an apostle, but is outstanding among the apostles. Yeah, that's the problem. So... Let's go through the, the issue. Has this been normally understood to be a woman? By normally, you mean within the early church fathers or normally within the past like century? So give us a history of how this has been interpreted. Well, for starters, let's just... The issue is between... The name, right? So, originally, the early church fathers basically all understood this passage to be Junia, a woman's name. It really wasn't even considered Junius. It was never brought up to be Junius um, in any of the church, early church fathers. And Junius would be the, the man's name. Yes, Junius would be the man's name. The interesting thing about the name Junius is that it's actually not a name. Um, The belief or the suspicion would be that Junius is a made-up, fabricated name where uh, people just added an accent mark to the name Junia to make it a man's name, Junius, because of the context of this verse that being apostles and the idea is that we we know that junia is a woman's name yes uh let me find it so that there's no instance of uh a man named junia that junia is always feminine yeah junia is always feminine and juni is is actually not a name and um during this time, Hans Lietzmann did exhaustive search in the 1900s to like look through all the surviving names, and he came to the conclusion that the name Junius didn't exist because there is no record of anybody in any writing being called Junius. There is no name Junius. Yes, but there is a name 
Junanius, and some have proposed that perhaps this person is actually just Junanius, and his name has been shortened to Junius. But the issue with that is there's no record of that. There, that's not, like, you know, a lot of people named William are called Bill, and a lot of people will be named William to be called Bill, and that's kind of common. And that's what's being suggested for Junius, but the Junianus, but that cannot be traced, cannot be found. So that's just more of a fabrication of the imagination. Um, so in the translations that we have, the uh, when did it get shifted from Junia to Junius, or what? What is the So the only difference between the name Junia and Junius in the Greek is an accent mark. And the accents, of course, uh, they, they weren't even added to the Greek manuscripts until the 19th century. So the only difference that we can notice would be the 19th century, which is extremely late uh, to be making... Kind, these kinds of assumptions and it is it just has no authority but when the Greek manuscripts were first published with the accent marks they all agreed and read feminine but since then there has been a shift and they've kind of disagreed with like each manuscript there's a variation what is kind of interesting to notice is that um, the English translations, the older translations, they will translate Junius, but then the revised versions of the same editions hmm. will translate Junia because they've kind of traced their steps and realized they've given a poor translation of the name. Examples would be the NIV. Uh, the King James Version actually never um, translated it. Junius, which is interesting. It was always, it's always been translated Junia. Uh, the Living Bible is another one that did that. And the uh, Revised Standard Version as well. Translated it Junius. And then changed it to Junia with their updated versions. So what you're describing, let's see if I summarize this rightly, is that we have uh, no evidence of any but a feminine, that all people named Junia were women. There was no Junius. And that it is only with uh, the advent of uh, 19th century translations that the uh, clear idea is that uh, it is changed that the name is changed to a man's name. Yeah. Why? What happened? And why? So the the implication is that this woman is an outstanding apostle. Why would they change it? Well, that's kind of obvious. Um, <laughs> the 
reading of Paul is very misogynistic culturally. What we have done to Paul's writing and even the Gospels, really just everything is misogynistic because mm -hmm. culture leans towards a quote-unquote man's world. It is silly to say that it is, I saw a sign the other day that said, it's a woman's world, men are just living in it. And I was like, who said that? That's not true. <laughs> because it is a man's world. Um, something that Peterson mm -hmm. talks about in her book, The Lost Apostle, is she traces um, the academic shift from the monasteries to the university system and how, this might be off topic, but the shift from the monasteries to the university systems pushed out women even further because in the monasteries, at least women, you know, could go and be nuns and study, but in the university system, women were not allowed to even partake in the university system, and very few women could even be educated and they had to be very rich because they had to be, have a private tutor. And how the shift... Their, women were already excluded from uh, the higher circles of leadership and influence, but this shift even further pushed them out where men are interpreting the scriptures, men are reading the scriptures, men are teaching the scriptures, the everything is from a man's perspective without any input from women. And so the, what she's describing is that the shift in name is partly that in the church itself there was a, con, a, a shift in which women became oppressed and excluded, and that's reflected in the history of translation. Yes, yeah. And what also is cool to look at is whenever you read the Bible and you read the New Testament, particularly uh, Luke's writings, you can see that Christianity is different because women are not excluded. In Romans 16 itself, uh, Paul mentions, I think it's eight women that are co-workers with him, while he only mentions six men to say not that women are overpowering men or anything, but that women's influence is significant and women are allowed to partake in Christianity and to partake in Christianity in a full way where you don't have to just be sideline sitters and you don't just only have to talk in the kitchen. You get to partake in the fullness of Christianity. So you're saying... This woman <laughs> was an apostle. Yeah, she's a. I mean, that's what Paul said. So. So I guess that's the the next issue. It, it clearly there that Junia is a woman, mm -hmm. and the next issue then, she's an apostle and an outstanding apostle. Now, has that been a reading that has been contested? Well, of course. So an apostle, as we understand. Generally, when you say apostle, you just think of the 12 Jewish men that followed around Jesus. And that is it. We don't think about the fact what 
basically how apostles functioned were just as how we understand missionaries. But the requirements to be an apostle were to witness the risen Christ and to receive divine commission to go forth with the gospel message. And uh, Andronicus and Junia could have received this apostleship in a variety of ways um, because of the appearance of the 70, the Pentecost, the sending of the 120. There's a lot of different ways that this could be, um, that they could have received this. It's not like it is a, you have to be appeared to on the road to Damascus like Paul's experience but that there are perhaps quite a few apostles that we've never even heard of. So the, the word apostle would be the twelve used in a special sense. It would could refer to anyone sent. But the idea is that in the word there is a, a, a leadership role it's denoted as a, as, a, as a role of leadership is that is that correct yeah so even what a lot of people will do with this verse to kind of because you really cannot say that junia junia is junius like there's no way that you can get away with that so oh what people will do to diminish the influence that junia actually had is to just say that she was a little a apostle, whatever that even means, and just to say that she was sent by a church. But even even at that, that still means that she is a woman of influence. Like at the worst possible translation or imagine understanding. yeah, understanding you could have, it still leaves her influential. Mm-hmm. And so what will what typically is seen is just trying to diminish the fullness of what is implied here and and so the paul mentions eight people eight women well let me find the actual number. and uh eight uh and a total of six men as being his helpers but he it takes special pains then to point out that Junia is outstanding among the people the, the, and calls her an apostle. So whatever the word means, your point, is, well, it denotes leadership and that she's, she's uh, uh, picked out as an especially strong leader. Is that the idea? Yeah. Also, I found it, it's only three men are mentioned in filling a leadership role in the Roman church in Romans 16, while seven women are mentioned in filling these roles. And a lot of people speculate that women were so prominent because this is so hopeful for them because women have historically been oppressed and pushed aside. Women couldn't study under rabbis. Women couldn't learn. They couldn't really do much other than just live life day to day and so the fact that something has come along that is so significant that they can actually partake in is exciting mm-hmm. I mean mm-hmm. imagine being told no your whole life and then you're finally told yes mm-hmm. 
like that's extremely exciting and that's kind of what my study in junior has been for me in realizing that oh I actually shouldn't be told no that perhaps this has been a misunderstanding and a false view of Christianity that uh, the picture then is that uh, there is a Christianity and maybe this relates to the whole function of you know what is salvation how does salvation work if we if we have the idea that uh, salvation is something that really doesn't change anything up it's just sort of going into heaven when you die then there's no threat to the cultural structures as we have them but it seems like that that what's taking place in the new testament is revolutionary in nature and what you're describing is that uh in the church then and and it's interesting that it's paul uh, of course, we if we think of Luke as, as writing from a Pauline perspective, that Luke uh, also then takes great pains to point out that Christ in, you know, in the gospel uh, goes out of his way to, uh, in fact, incorporate women among okay. his followers, among the people that he's clearly chosen, uh, that in, the, in Acts, that uh, the same story that that Priscilla and Aquila, that many point out that Priscilla is often, in fact, mentioned prior to Aquila, indicating that of this evangelistic team, she may have been the one uh, that was the more prominent of the two. And Paul does not hesitate then to, to mention women on, on several occasions that, uh, and, more pro- and give them a more prominent place uh, in Romans, the most the key book of the new, you know, theologically, uh, gives women a key place among those people who he finds prominent in leadership. Also, in Luke's writing in Acts, in Pentecost, he tells us that women are present, and also we think of sometimes, often at least, always what I have pictured Pentecost to be. And um, Acts 1 and 2 is just the 12 dudes sitting in the room, kind of shaking, trembling, terrified because they think they're going to die or something. That's kind of what's suggested by, if you talk about it. But Luke tells us, actually, there was a crowd of people, including the 12, and he goes out of his way to mention, oh yeah, women were there. And then the Holy Spirit comes. And the Holy Spirit falls, I don't know, I guess falls the word he uses, Mm -hmm. but the Holy Spirit indwells both men and women, thus, and gives them the gift of tongues, thus that would mean women were not only given this gift, but with this gift there is a responsibility. And for women to not use their gift that the Holy Spirit has given them is irresponsible, and for people to keep women from using their gift that the Holy Spirit has given them is also irresponsible. Uh, maybe, maybe irresponsible is not a strong enough word. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. You think? Yeah. Uh, that maybe it's sinful 
that maybe a church that continues to oppress certain classes of people, certain races, certain types of people, does not deserve the name. Is that too strong? <laughs> uh, or are we allowed to oppress some people? <laughs> well, when you put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> so, we've got the name. It must be a woman's name. She's an apostle, whatever that might mean. One could say that, you know, whatever it means, it means that she's in a role of leadership. But then the question is, well, why doesn't anybody know about this? Who murdered Junia? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, Peterson, um, in her book, The Lost Apostle, she does an exhaustive search to find out who killed Junia. And her conclusions are that, one, it's a process, and it's not something that is just like a, you know, a murder in the dark or whatever, but it's more of a poisoning over several centuries. She traces it to uh, Giles of Rome. And she's saying that these, uh, that in this history of interpretation, that there are the tendency is for uh, men who are misogynistic mm -hmm. to, in fact, uh, get rid of Junia. Right, of course, because when your identity is grounded in your masculinity, which is defined by the oppression uh, and almost demonization of the other, of females, a female apostle threatens the very identity and it threatens the entire system because once we really, the understanding of the apostleship of Junia, it's not like, oh, everything depends on this, but it's more of a foot in the door of an entire world that we have been missing out on Maisie, you were gonna you were gonna comment on a particular passage that that uh, Sharon's saying. Well, there's a world that we're missing out on. How would you describe that? Um. Well, I guess this. I feel like I came. I kind of came from the other side of things. Like as you're describing uh, an irresponsibility, I almost kind of liked it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> kind of. I wasn't. I I guess in a way. I never necessarily felt oppressed, but at the same time, I was okay with not having to be up in front or taking leadership. I like to avoid those, you know, those responsibilities. Or um, so, you know, as I was learning about this, not just Junia, but even, you know, our friend Shayla presented on Galatians, but also even Genesis 3 is part of the curse, and, um, so, you know, I guess in Galatians I can read that, but, um, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, 
There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Um, so, of course, you know, we can... There's different ideas of how, you know, we want to understand that as well. But I don't know how else you can you can see that as um, just that we're in Christ. We're made one. There's no one who's, you know, more significant or less significant than another. And um, I'll, even when society's going to oppress a particular group of people, whether it's women or whether it's a certain race or... You know, that doesn't that doesn't have anything to do with what the culture of Christ is and what the church does. So, but what about the notion that Galatians is talking about salvation? It's not talking about gender roles or roles of ethnicity, but it is talking about salvation mm. when you get to heaven. Oh, <laughs> uh, yes, so then that opens up to all the other conversations we have and what all the other podcasts are about, too, as well as just what does it mean to be saved and what is salvation in the first place. And so, you know, um, it's probably not just about what heaven might be like in the future, although that Sounds like an interesting place, too. <laughs> I'm glad that we're welcome there, but I don't know what our role will be like even even in heaven. So um, the, the freedom and the love of all people um, seems to be the, the type of freedom that is included in being in Christ now that we start to be working out. On our Tuesday Bible study, I think it was this past Tuesday, Paul, you said, well, salvation is a verb. It's not a place. It's not an object, so to speak. But it's a verb. And the fact that we have salvation means that we have a responsibility as well. Not saying that we have mm -hmm. to all be up front. We all have to preach or teach or whatever. Yeah. But we all use our gifts accordingly. But it, yeah, it's just the presence of God, you know, and just bear, bearing his image and just, I guess, you know, diving into more. What does it mean to be an image bearer? And what does it mean for you and me? And what does it mean for, you know, Paul, the Apostle Paul and Paul Axon too? <laughs> like, what is it, you know, we are image bearers of God, um... And so, yes, that comes with responsibility, but also freedom. So the, the, the difference that you're describing is that we could misunderstand this passage, but a part of the misunderstanding may, in fact, be connected to a complete misunderstanding, that, is, that this is a part of a misconstrued Christianity, that if Christianity is primarily about a future salvation... Mm -hmm. uh, then this may be, well, slaves can go to heaven, masters can go to heaven. But that doesn't seem mm -hmm. to be what Paul's describing. He seems to be describing a revolution mm -hmm. in which identity is no longer on the basis of these roles that we play in society, 
that it's no longer identity on the basis of Jew and Gentile, which for Paul is the biggie. Yeah. That once you get rid of, uh, you know, that alienation, he's, you know, in the, uh, Ephesians is it, he describes the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. But of course that dividing wall, as he's saying here in Galatians, it may be between male, female, slave, free, that salvation then is an undoing of all sorts of alienation and oppression that is enacted or is supposed to be enacted in the church. Mm-hmm. So maybe, Sharon, is it that we need to reconsider with this subject uh, salvation itself or what Christianity is? Mm-hmm. You've discovered this in, in fairly recent times. Tell me what, how your change, your, the change has come about in your thinking. Well, before I was a Christian, I was very, my identity certainly was constituted in my gender, um, and I have always recognized the issue of women being oppressed. Perhaps my response was not appropriate. Uh, In fact, I responded how most people respond. Once they recognize oppression, they just turn around and do the same thing. Uh, but then, of course, becoming a Christian and understanding uh, maybe church dogmatics might be the right word, uh, I quickly learned that I wasn't allowed to do the things that I felt like I should do or that I was called to do. Uh, in fact, I spent many hours in your wife Faith's office fretting over this because, you know, I'm a woman. I can't do anything. I can get a degree in teaching and teach little kids, or I can get a degree in counseling, but I'm not, I don't want to do that. I don't want to teach kids. I don't like kids that much. I'm not gifted with kids, and I'm definitely not gifted in counseling. So it was a really big um, pull my life because it's like okay well these are literally my only options and this is not where I'm gifted but then um, when I first heard about Junia uh, heard about this it was like a foot in the door of a reading of Paul of reading the Bible and understanding oh this actually is a false understanding and this is an incomplete Christianity, and, and it's irresponsible of me to not use the passions and gifts that God has given me in a way. Do you you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I, it's. I was reading a blog um, yesterday or day before on the Junior Project, and it was kind of tracing the stages that people go through. Um, and it was from a man's perspective, and but it's certainly relatable to women as well. And Maisie, you described this in your understanding. You kind of liked the idea that women can't do anything, where I kind of hated it. Mm-hmm. And kind of going through the stages of accepting it and it being a thing, and then kind of... I also, so I accepted it, and then I kind of moved to a spot, well, women's roles, women can preach, but they just can't have authority, whatever that even means. Uh, I'm not quite sure. 
but that's what a lot of people say I think and that's what I was led to believe and then moving into an understanding of all of that is kind of nonsense um, and a bad reading of the Bible particularly the New Testament and so it's kind of freed you up to, to just in basically not just well, who you are, but also then the possibilities of how you can express who you are. Right. Yeah. Maisie, I'm wondering in terms of your own uh, development, has this made a difference in the way that you viewed marriage or the way that, uh, have you, has this made a difference for you? Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, specifically with marriage, as we talk about a lot in marriage enrichment. Um for Chris and myself because you know I had this expectation of him to be the leader of the household in a spiritual sense and and Chris I think had an <laughs> had the idea of being a leader of the household in maybe just a general sense <laughs> um, get my slippers and my pipe and <laughs> yeah exactly so both of those things were very, it was just really, really frustrating. I mean, it was a difficult time, you know, in the beginning of our marriage. Um, and kind of, I just, I do think that was an unfair expectation. At least, you know, at least, well, not just for us, and in general for the man to, you know, to be the... You know, the only person I'm getting advice from or how, whatever I had in my mind that, you know, he's going to be the person I look up to. He's going to be the one to answer all my questions spiritually. And I shouldn't necessarily, you know, question him or his motives, uh, but instead uh, just let him lead, even if he leads in the wrong direction. And, uh, you know, and just be patient. So basically just sit back and be quiet and pretty much be who I've I've never been like I said I it's not like I like to be up front but I in the past but I was still never I never felt like I was pushed down and in a way I felt encouraged to ask questions and things so um yeah so I kind of felt like I was struggling with if if I what who should I be (laughs) was I gonna have to completely be a different person when I'm when I'm gonna get married now, uh, so yeah, so it was freeing to know. Okay, we're it's just a bigger picture. In the bigger picture, we're brothers and sisters in Christ, and we are both pushing each other uh, to become more like Christ and become more one together in that too. So just understanding we we both are. Um, yeah, equal, encouraging one another. I'm going to lead him sometimes, and it's okay. And he's going to lead me sometimes, and it's okay. You know. Now, Sharon, you just got married too, uh, and going. You've sort of discovered this going into marriage. Uh, tell me, has it uh, uh, has it changed up? Maybe what you might have expected. Well, I didn't really. Also, okay, so a big understanding, at least what I was taught, well, you can be in ministry if you're not married, 
and if you're a woman. That's really the only way that you can uh, be of influence, which I don't understand the logic in that, uh, but I definitely bought into it, so I kind of assumed, oh, well, I'm just not going to get married, because that's really the only way I can pursue what has been, I don't know if placed on my heart is the right word, or just what my passion is. And I do think that my passion and my desires have changed, and I'm not as, um, I guess maybe we were talking just earlier this hour about, like, icons, and I thought maybe, thought of myself, you know, being this prominent person, and I thought, okay, well, I just, you know, I can't be married to do that. Uh, but I think I've realized, one, that it's not about that, and two, it doesn't really matter, um... It's just all politics anyways. So, let me, we've gone through your re, the basic research. The junior must be a woman. She must be an apostle. That it, in, it reflects a shift in the understanding that's taking place in the New Testament, reflected in passages like Galatians, but I'm sure in many other places. Mm-hmm. Um, but what would be some other implications then of the the uh, this understanding, or that you think might be implications? Well, it, okay, I want to backtrack a little bit because we didn't talk about this yet. And in there's not a lot on Junia, it because it's just one verse. Junia and Andronicus and Junia aren't found anywhere else in the New Testament. We only have church tradition about them and their life but what we do have insight in is Paul says they were in prison with me and what's important to about that is the government's not going to go around throwing little housewives in prison that the government is after the people who are prominent the people who are making a difference the people who are converting other people in the people who are influential, they're not going to target, I guess, couch sitters, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So the fact that they were imprisoned with Paul and that they were pu- persecuted for what they were doing means that they were doing something important that the government was trying to stop. Mm-hmm. And... What is unfortunate is that the church Christians are now the ones that are trying to stop what people are doing that's important. You know, I I can remember when I was in high school and it was Youth Sunday where the youth group was supposed to lead the worship service and I wanted to pass communion because I thought communion was important and I was told you can't do that. And I think that was when I first realized the effects that the quote-unquote women's roles Mm -hmm. really has. And in fact, we really shouldn't talk about women's roles. Nowhere in the Bible does it talk about women's roles. Mm -hmm. We have instances where Paul talks about particular situations where women were a part of it. But also men were a part of it. Mm -hmm. And 
but to talk about women's roles is perhaps inadequate and we shouldn't talk about women's roles we should talk about the view of women and if we have a proper understanding of women as Paul suggests in Galatians then we have a proper understanding of the living out of salvation that both Jews and Greeks also male and female slave and free that we have and that we can live out salvation yeah I don't suppose people go around saying well we need to talk about slave roles in the church today (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah or we need to talk about the Jews roles and the so that if we take the, I, I think the picture there, you've got all these opposed pairs that is the way that people do identity. Mm-hmm. And that's being undone in the uh, New Testament church and culture, or supposed to, was supposed to have been undone. Mm-hmm. So what you're, you're saying that in your high school period, uh, but surely when you came to college, you found an open acceptance then of this clear New Testament teaching. Right, yeah, that's exactly what happened. Um, No, I wouldn't say that. Really, Forging Plowshares has opened up a huge world for me because it has allowed me to see that I have been irresponsible with my gifts and I've also been unfair to other women and I can you know, think of instances where I have um, judged other women for being in, for taking, I, I don't even know if taking charge is the right word, because you wouldn't describe a man wanting to preach, you wouldn't describe a man that went to go preach by taking charge. But if a woman does that, of course it's taking charge. Mm-hmm. And kind of condemning women who spoke I guess is the only way to describe it and then realizing how it was sinful to condemn other women and also sinful to not partake in what God has gifted me in yeah what you're describing is an odd phenomenon that I found is that the the it's sort of like the hostage syndrome that uh, the hostages begin to identify with those who have taken them hostage. And sometimes women in uh, conservative Christian circles are their own worst enemies in uh, oppressing themselves and one another. Mm, certainly, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, your conclusion then is what in regard so we've got this verse we've got this woman apostle that it seems like so so give me some what are the big picture ramifications one would be that women are equal to men and also that men are equal to women and i like to imagine that paul and his ministry was so successful in furthering the gospel because of his inclusion of women. And, I mean, when you're, single, when you're excluding half of the population, it's really hard to get anything accomplished. I mean, think of like a basketball team or a, some kind of team or a group or maybe a business. 
if half of the people are not included in the progress of things, it's going to be ineffective. That's half the population that has to be bench warmers. And that means not oppressing the other and being our identity not being in our genitalia but our identity being in Christ and our identity being in moving forward and living out salvation Uh, Maisie has this been news to you yeah <laughs> I mean, again, I guess um I mean we've t- it has a lot to do with you know our we talk about identity all the time, and so we can i I just think of a lot of things on this topic, like putting your identity in your gender and like just how that affects so many things in our culture right now. So, I mean, it's a, it's a huge topic, I guess, and a lot to talk about. Um, but it's basically, yeah, it's just kind of opened my eyes. And still new to me and, you know, figuring out what it all means or what it might look like in my life, but I just know that it's been, like, encouraging for Chris and myself, you know? Uh, I mean, it's affected me the most in marriage, you know, and, you know, Chris doesn't have this expectation of himself, too, that he has to have everything figured out, and he needs to be, you know, only encouraging me and leading me, you know, mm-hmm. and um, instead we're both just realize, you know, just admitting when we're wrong and being honest, it's kind of really simple. Yeah. Um but yeah, I mean it has it has implications of everything as implications of you know how the church is is understanding homosexuality or any transgender um any anybody who's transgender and so it just like it opens your eyes. I mean, not specifically junior, but just like male female understanding I guess in in the Bible and so that this doesn't need to be in any way definitive of right yeah well thank you guys you Sharon did we cover it I mean yeah I so I do want we can end on this quote there's a lot of really good quotes um if this topic interests you in the study of Junia specifically I highly suggest going to um, the juniorproject.com and reading some of their blogs. Um, it's just about, e- their focus isn't necessarily junior, but it's egalitarianism. Mm-hmm. And uh, Rena Peterson, uh, she has a book called The Lost Apostle, and it's a really great read, um, and it has a lot of information about junior specifically. But I'll end on this quote by F.F. Bruce. There's no telling what may happen to people when they begin to study the book of Moses. And I think that's what happened.
It's a wonderful way. All right. Thank you, guys.